This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, a podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. You can subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on our social media pages. And while you're at it, I would love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. So for today's episode, you know, I wanted to kind of just, well, I I started thinking as I was recording the last two podcast episodes with Rachel on spiritual deconstruction. Actually, we did three podcasts. So the two on spiritual deconstruction and then talking about the docu-series Shiny Happy People. I was thinking of just rounding out and finishing off the series that I was doing talking about family systems, talking about mesh family systems and disengaged family systems. And I know in one of the last episodes I had mentioned that, you know, we kind of look at those as maybe the foundational system that's in place. And then you can layer on other issues. So you can layer on issues like abuse, you can, or domestic violence, you can layer on issues like narcissism, you can layer on issues of incest or, you know, different things. I mean, we could do episodes, maybe ad nauseum or infinity, right? About different things that then are layered on that foundational piece of the family foundation. But one of the things that I started thinking about as I was recording episodes with Rachel is, you know, one of the things that we could lay on that is high demand religion or orthodox religion, abusive religious beliefs that the family is, you know, involved in, is practicing, holds those beliefs as part of the family system. And that maybe that deserves its own episode itself. So I wanted to talk about that in this podcast episode. Now, according to a Pew Research Center survey that was conducted from 2018 to 2020, and then it was published and released in 2020, when we look at the United States, about 64% of Americans, including children, identify as Christian. Then there's the category people who are religiously unaffiliated. Sometimes they're referred to, and this is a newer term as of, I think, this survey, maybe it was around a little bit before 2018, but they call it the nuns, not like nuns you think of like Catholic nuns who, you know, wear a habit or whatever, but talking about nuns in terms of the word N-O-N-E-S, nuns, they have no religious affiliation. They accounted for 30% of the U.S. population. And then adherents of all other religions, including Jews, Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists, totaled about 6% of the U.S. population. Now, we know that since the 1990s, large numbers of Americans have left Christianity to join the growing ranks of U.S. adults who describe their religious identity as atheist, agnostic, or, quote, nothing in particular. And we know, too, that this accelerating trend is reshaping the U.S. religious landscape. The Pew Research Center modeled several hypothetical scenarios describing how the U.S. religious landscape might change over the next half century. So depending on whether religious switching continues at the recent rates that they are, or whether it speeds up or stops entirely, projections that they did show Christians of all ages shrinking from 64%, which they are currently, 
to between little more than half at 54% and just above one third, 35% of all Americans by the year 2070. Now over that same period, this category of nuns would rise from the current 30% to somewhere between 34% and 52% of the US population. When you look at the two youngest generations that we have, so the millennial generation, currently the millennial generation reports two thirds with no religious affiliation. And then Gen Z who are, you know, they're coming of age. And then, you know, maybe some of them are still in high school or junior high, I'm not doing the math right off the top of my head. But Gen Z is reporting at 50% no religious affiliation. Now, I do want to say up front here in this episode, my goal is not to tackle religion in general as something that's either good or bad or right or wrong. But like I said, similar to looking at enmeshed and disengaged family systems, I think I would be missing a piece of the puzzle to not look at how religious systems play into dysfunctional family systems or play into healthy family systems. Now, many people I want to acknowledge, right, that many people find within their faith a sense of identity, community, and a deeper connection to purpose or a higher power. And it's also how they find or make meaning in their life. Those things can obviously be important, they can be healthy, and they can make a big difference in someone's life. And along with the benefits of any faith system come the dangers of experiencing spiritual abuse or religious trauma. So what do I mean by those two terms? Well, let's start by defining these terms. So what is religious trauma? Religious trauma occurs when a person's religious experience is stressful, degrading, dangerous, abusive, or damaging. Traumatic religious experiences can harm or threaten to harm someone's physical, emotional, mental, sexual, and spiritual health and safety. Spiritual abuse happens when someone uses spiritual or religious beliefs to hurt or scare or control you. And it can involve someone forcing you or your children to participate in spiritual or religious practices when you don't want to. Or they use their religious beliefs to judge or influence or control another person. Some common examples of both of these would be a religious leader or parent or a partner or authority figure who has used scripture or their religious beliefs to humiliate or embarrass or put you down. Maybe you've been coerced into giving money or other resources that you didn't want to give or didn't really have to give. The survey by the Child Protection Advisory Service may have been the first opportunity that many victims of spiritual abuse had to share their story in an anonymous form. This was an online survey and the survey reports that two thirds of respondents to this said that they had been spiritually abused. Now, obviously we'd need to look deeper into the parameters of that survey and how many people responded and who was it sent to and yada, yada, yada. But I do think that's significant. It's the beginning of something to look at and put out there in an anonymous way and to account for who's reporting what. Now, I think it's also important to point out that any structure or community 
can provide the opportunity for power dynamics to be abusive. However, when we start to throw faith into the mix, everything gets an extra layer of complication because faith can be such a key part to a person's identity or the identity of their family or community. When we're controlled or influenced by narratives that are dehumanizing, degrading, shame-based or fear-based, we can experience deep trauma mentally and emotionally. You know, sometimes I'll say it's one thing if your boss is abusive, or it's one thing if you had a teacher who was abusive or degrading, still not okay. But it's another thing when someone claiming to speak for God tells you something negative about yourself. Now, I know I haven't gone into the depths of my own faith journey on this podcast, but if you've listened for a while, you will have picked up that I was raised in church and I was active in my youth group and on into my adult years. Now, I have felt at different periods of my life that, unlike my family of origin, church gave me a pretty good foundation to grow, and in some ways it kept me safe and gave me a feeling of security. I also know people whose faith has informed their identity in a positive way and was empowering to them as an adult. That wasn't my experience. My experience was that as I got older and found my own voice and could articulate my own thoughts and have my own beliefs. And like I said, I was able to articulate and express those. This wasn't necessarily seen as a positive thing by the male leaders in my church. And eventually things came to a head and I had a choice to make. So I stepped away and I went through the process of officially removing my name from the records of the church that I was a part of. And yes, that was a legal process. And I will say that has been a good decision for me. I also don't pretend to know what anyone else's decisions should be, but for me and for my family, it was a good decision. Now, as a therapist that has practiced in the field for many years, I also understand the workings of healthy systems and unhealthy systems. In my experience, I encountered people and systems that were controlling and judgmental, that were overly rigid and not accepting of individual differences and strengths. Now, granted, there are more rigid systems out there. There's more controlling forms of Christianity out there, but I feel like mine was enough of that, that it wasn't working for me. And again, my goal with this episode is not to demonize religion or people who are practicing in their religions, just as I wouldn't pretend to know that just because the family system was unhealthy and ended up causing a lot of damage on the individual members of the family system that they shouldn't still be part of the family system. I, I don't know that this is not black and white. There's not these concrete rules around these types of systems. And it really comes down to, it depends on what is best for each person. But I will say that family, just like religion has the potential to shape us for better or worse. And in this episode, I do wanna talk about religious trauma and religious abuse. Now, again, when we talk about religious trauma, I would say it's a term that's often used to describe symptoms. Now there's another term to become familiar with while I'm talking about this subject, and that is religious trauma syndrome. 
This is a term that was coined by Marlene Winnell, and she defines religious trauma syndrome as the condition experienced by people who are struggling with leaving an authoritarian dogmatic religion and coping with the damage of indoctrination they may be going through. The second part of her definition is the shattering of a personally meaningful faith and or breaking away from a controlling community life. Now you might be thinking here that religious trauma syndrome in many ways sounds similar to complex PTSD. And you would be right. Religious trauma syndrome can come with negative beliefs about ourselves, struggles making our own decisions, influence that authentic self, having issues with emotional regulation, depression, anxiety, and having difficulties in our relationships. All of these symptoms can also occur with complex PTSD. The difference being that religious trauma syndrome is in direct connection with experiences within our religious beliefs and those belief structures. Because our religion can have such a hold on our entire belief system, our self-image, and our relationship to community, many in the therapy field find it helpful to give this type of trauma its own name and its own label. Now, while religious trauma syndrome can be different depending on the religion, the practices, or the beliefs, it typically has a common component of fear and emotional manipulation. Individuals may be told that they will be separated from God. They might face social ruin, financial ruin. They'll go to hell based on their adherence to a certain set of traditions or belief. Religious trauma can stem from this spiritual abuse and can impact individuals differently as well, but can have a devastating effect on someone's self-esteem, their sense of worth, and their identity. Religion can impact the way that we see the world, and it can be easy to deny the existence of problems in the face of continual optimism and faith that a higher power will fix any challenge encountered, or that the challenges faced are part of their faith being tested. And this toxic positivity can lead to lasting harm. Religious trauma can lead to an individual believing that they are inherently bad or condemned, especially if they've experienced purity culture. Even after they've left the religion and their previous held beliefs, some of those ideas can be really hard to deconstruct and to not have them kind of ingrained in our system. Now, we also know by early research being done on this topic of people leaving religion that often males raised in these religious communities that are highly patriarchal don't always deconstruct patriarchy as just an organic part of their deconstruction process. And that that's something usually that has to be pointed out to them in order for them to start deconstructing that. And I just mentioned that because I think it's I think it's very interesting. I have some ideas about what that means, but I'll just say this that I think in the United States, which is still a very patriarchal country, I don't know that that's super surprising to me. Religion and spirituality should be a source of comfort, peace, community, and inspiration in your life. If that's not the case, you could be experiencing spiritual abuse. People who experience abuse often feel ashamed or isolated, and they may wonder if they deserve to be treated badly. And I just want to say here, abuse is never the fault of the victim. Whether this happens at home 
or within a religious organization. Abuse is always the fault of the perpetrator. And when systems protect abusers and silence victims, that's abusive. Now, I will say, just going back to the term syndrome, there's some controversy in the therapy and psychology field using the term syndrome. The term syndrome is often defined as a recognizable complex set of symptoms and physical findings which indicate a specific condition for which a direct cause is not necessarily understood. When you look at synonyms for the word syndrome, they include things like ailment, disorder, malady, problem, sickness, and affliction. And so, yeah, maybe using the term syndrome isn't the best choice of words in that it wouldn't necessarily fall under this category of a disease, which is often how we think of syndromes before we you know, know more about them. And in the case of religious trauma syndrome, there's a known cause. I also think that sometimes overanalyzing something based on whether or not it's the best word sometimes misses the point. I mean, I'm all for using the best word possible, but I don't want to be so focused on the word that we miss the impact. I'm a big believer that labels are helpful until they're not. And I don't know if using the word syndrome is enough to make it not helpful. Now, we know that these abusive tactics are found in both large, well-recognized faith organizations and in cults. Often leaders of pseudo-religious groups will use spirituality as a way to exert control over their followers. And this can have serious consequences for both children and adults. So let's get into the ways that religious systems, similar to family systems or any other system, can be unhealthy, abusive, and cause trauma. And I'm making my list from different things that have been written about healthy and unhealthy systems and the signs of particularly unhealthy systems, as well as stories that I've heard from clients. So the first one, I have 12 of these, and there's going to be a gap between number 11 and number 12, just as an FYI. So number one, any system that requires conformity in beliefs in order to belong and doesn't make space for questions, individual preferences or beliefs is an unhealthy system and is capable of causing damage or resulting in trauma. Now, maybe that sounds like I'm stating the obvious, but again, if you're raised in this, I don't think that's obvious to you. Or if you're raised in unhealthy family systems, sometimes this conformity can feel like belonging. It can feel like acceptance, which are things we might be looking for if we were raised in unhealthy systems. As I talked about in my episode on enmeshed family systems, when independent thinking isn't valued or supported, this threatens our fundamental need for authenticity, autonomy, and individuation. Now, sometimes the consequences for disagreeing can be very intense. While the church I was a part of doesn't espouse beliefs around shunning members whose beliefs do not conform with the beliefs taught by the leaders, that pretty much was my experience. And I will say that is a pretty intense experience to be shunned by the people you used to socialize with and interact with and worship with. And I don't even think I realized the impact of that shunning until we had moved. This obedience to faith or organization is typically also encouraged over any other values. 
and the organization insists that it has primacy or it's the most important of all other organizations you may be part of. So the religion is more important than work. Religion may be more important than the family. Although I think they would kind of confuse that and say that the religion is supporting the family. So I think that's how they make it more important than the family or it has primacy over the family organization. Now, the second one goes along with number one, but it's also a sign of an unhealthy organization or system. And that is members are encouraged to look and dress the same. Uniformity is encouraged or required in clothing, haircuts, jewelry, etc. Now, again, here, individuation would be frowned upon and expressing who you are as an individual is seen as threatening to the loyalty of the organization or the religion. And I will add here that in patriarchal religions, the uniformity of females is monitored much more than male uniformity. There might be uniformity with males in terms of, you know, how long their hair can be or whether they have facial hair or not and what that facial hair can look like. Or, you know, they can be required to dress in a certain way to be uniform. So I, I don't want to imply here that males are unscathed by this, but there definitely seems to be an overemphasis and messaging to women that men or young men don't always get. Now, I think that when we value uniformity and loyalty to an organization more than a person's ability to be themselves, that's a really big red flag that this is a destructive hierarchy. If we were to put that in the family system, we would say the comfort or loyalty to the parent is valued more than the comfort or loyalty of the family members. And in unhealthy family systems, I talked about, you know, children taking care of parents instead of the other way around. And this would be a similar structure that values the members caring for the organization or the leader instead of leaders having the responsibility to tend to each one of their members. Number three is in alignment with the previous two indicators. And that is the grouper organization has an almost obsessive focus on the outward appearance of organizational buildings, properties, grounds being kept meticulously. And a great deal of time and effort is spent on these resources. So it's kind of, again, shoring up. We talked about this in family systems, shoring up that external view, despite the lack of what's happening internally or what's going on within the system. Number four, I would say, beware of any faith community, or we could just say anyone or anything that motivates with fear. Activating our threat system in order to attain desired behaviors or to control is manipulative and it's also abusive. Now this can sound like if you don't repent, you're going to go to hell and kind of holding that over kids heads, right? Or if you aren't pure or worthy, you're not going to marry a good partner and it won't be the partner's fault that they're abusive, right? It's going to be your fault that you're not worthy or you're not pure. Maybe the lessons on purity that the teacher uses, the example, maybe you've seen this one going around, the example of chewed gum, you know, that if you're not pure, 
nobody's going to want you after this piece of gum has already been chewed and the gum is supposed to represent you, you know, or I've also heard of it being done in terms of like this beautifully decorated cake that's made with just a little bit of dog poop that draws the analogy to, you know, maybe something looks so beautiful on the outside and it looks so appealing and so attractive, which is ironic because that's also how the system is setting up the external appearance. But anyway, so there's this beautiful looking cake on the outside and mostly it's made of yummy things like vanilla and sugar, flour, maybe chocolate, but there's just a little bit of dog poop in. Well, okay, first of all, who does that? And what horribly shaming messages does that encourage? I mean, talk about black and white thinking, all or nothing thinking, and it just fails to capture the complexity of human beings. Or maybe we could use an example about religious teachings around tithes and offerings. After all, tithes and offerings are what God has asked us to do, and every good thing we have comes from God, right? And all that God is asking in return is 10% of our earnings. Doesn't seem so much, right? And this starts with young kids being taught, you have to give this money to the church or you're not going to be blessed or bad things are going to happen to you if you don't. Or whatever the fear motivating message was that got you to give your money regularly without actual real informed consent. Now, I've also known people who in their youth were pressured to make a purity pledge. And usually, again, this is done in a group setting. They're misusing group psychology or group sociology, sometimes with the encouragement of the boys to help apply the pressure to the girls. You know, after all, what boy is going to raise his hand saying he wants the impure girl to be his wife or the girl who's not a virgin to be his wife? I mean, first of all, this is very sexist and completely normalized. And second, what if they don't want to be a wife? Nobody's asking the girls about that. That's just a given, right? That you want to be a wife, you want to be a mother, and that's the only acceptable option. The fifth sign of spiritual or religious abuse is loyal members who are calling for reform or change or questioning something are purged or otherwise silenced. And there's no means for members to appeal this decision. One of the signs in a healthy family system or just a healthy system is that individual voices and needs are recognized and valued. They're even sought after. The structure of power that comes from the top down and those not at the top have to ingratiate themselves with those at the top to possibly get power from them is a sign of unhealthy power or abusive power. It's a power over structure where those at the top have power over the others and those underneath only have power if those at the top decide to give power to them. This really is not a structure of healthy power where power in healthy ways is power shared and there's power with and the leadership is conscious that it gets its power from the congregants but that isn't just a given or to be taken advantage of. The sixth red flag or sign of spiritual and religious abuse is 
control of life events and daily life being controlled by the organization. Now, this can look like the leadership of the organization being preoccupied with the most intimate details of members' lives, including finances, birth control, how they have sex, what's going on in their personal relationship. Examples of control over life events can include not being able to marry in the religion without leadership approval. It can look like leadership approval arranging those marriages. It can also look like controlling media, including television, radio, the newspapers, and news stations with media outside of the organization or religious beliefs being cast as suspect. So it's controlling information that comes into the system. It's also controlling any information that gets out from the system. And that leads into the seventh red flag, which is another common sign of an organization being abusive is one-way transparency. This can include finances, maybe they're kept secret on the behalf of the leadership, like members don't know what's actually being done with money that's contributed, but there's an expectation of full financial transparency from the members. Members being expected to live according to strict rules and expectations and to be transparent with leaders and repent for their shortcomings while the religious organization is not transparent with members. They may or may not be following the rules that are beneficial to the organization, but at least they're not following them with the same rigidity that's expected from the members. And this is insidious in the way it works. And it's effective because those brought up in the religion don't know any better. And those who have the power turn a blind eye to the abuses being committed and nobody's the wiser. Secrecy is the point. And if anyone gets to claim victimhood, it is the system, even though it's also the organization that is controlling the influence and the authority. The eighth sign or red flag of a unhealthy organization is that the organization is overly focused on winning over vulnerable populations, such as young people, those who are grieving, those in financial distress, or those who are looking for an authority that offers guarantees and a roadmap. They're looking for those individuals to join the organization. And the reality is that there is no guarantee. And while there can be some things that we can learn about ourselves and about life that can help create an approach to life, there is not a roadmap. One of the things that I often say is we have to live life on life's terms because life doesn't work on our terms. And so when people come and they're offering that, usually they're doing that to people who maybe haven't learned that or are looking for a way around that. The next red flag I want to talk about is fear and shame-based messaging regarding sexuality. The damage that's done to both men and women, and then I'm going to go into this in the next one as well, to members of the LGBTQ plus community with messages regarding sexuality, when those messages are oversimplified and are fear and shame-based, actually creates a hyperfixation on all things sexual. And that just is not healthy. Sexuality is a part of life, but it should not be 
focused on in this extreme way. Often the teaching that's kind of given to young men goes along the lines of they don't really have control over their sexual impulses. They need to rein that in and not objectify women, at least until they're married, right? And then I guess sex is like just a boundaryless relationship at that point. You know, they still can't objectify other women, but that they have these sexual desires, they have these sexual impulses, and they really can't control them. So they have to be controlled by the organization and other peers or leaders in the organization. Which when you step back and think about it, that's such a damaging message about their developing sexuality. Of course, they're capable of regulating and having restraint when it comes to their sexual feelings. And when they're given the message that their sexual desires are for them to regulate and that they have healthy role models in doing that, I just think that would lead to a different sexual landscape and one in which they're informed, their sexuality is accepted, and they're actually empowered. Now, I think the same thing would happen with women if from young ages, we both give permission to young girls to have and develop sexual desires while also teaching them their sexuality is not something to be feared and controlled. It can be accepted, respected, and regulated. Not that, you know, it's just open season for sexuality. That's not what I'm saying here. I am talking about regulating it. I'm talking about having some restraint, but I think that works best when it's coming with information and something that they are learning about over their lifetime, over their young adult years, not just simply something that happens, you know, right before marriage. I think that we would see healthier marriages when the focus of getting married is not simply on being able to have sex. I think we would be raising children and teens who are much more informed when it comes to sexuality. And again, I do think this would change, maybe even radically change the sexual landscape we currently find ourselves in, which is not a healthy one. Now, one of the things that I learned as a mom to four daughters and one who you know works in a field where I'm having sexual conversations about healthy sexuality multiple times a day with clients. One of the things that I learned is that teens want to have conversations with adults who don't just lecture them or scare them or shame them or make them uncomfortable about sexuality, but adults who will actually give them legitimate information and are willing to have discussions and are willing to listen to the questions they have and explain it and talk about it and ask questions in return, have a dialogue about sexuality, giving them legitimate information and answering their questions honestly, but ultimately leaving it up to them. I will say it was a bit surprising to me initially that teens would prefer actual conversations with an informed and open adult instead of just searching for information on Google. And then when I thought about it, I was like, of course they do. Who would not prefer a discussion or a dialogue over whatever is out there on the internet? Now, there are some good things out there teaching healthy sexuality, but that's not the same thing as having a conversation and multiple conversations, ongoing conversations. 
that would put the responsibility back on the adults in their lives to be able to hold space for these conversations, which also means we need to have done our own work on sexual issues and sexual messages that we received that weren't healthy. So we're not passing that along. And we aren't passing along sexual fear that maybe we inherited or the sexual shame that we were given. Now, I would say, leading into the next part, that any time there is inequality among members based on their race, based on gender, based on sexual orientation, there's likely to be religious abuse and trauma. So again, that leads me right into the next sign of an unhealthy organization or an unhealthy religion, which is religions that train us to not trust our body, our thoughts, or any urge or need that we have, because it may go against God or what the leaders in our church think is right for us. This often leads to what I have talked about previously in other episodes, which is disconnection from our body or dissociation, which can lead to some serious trauma and is a sign of some serious trauma. Now, a huge example of this currently is how many churches still are not accepting of our LGBTQ plus community And instead, they teach that their love is in some way sinful or goes against what God wants or what God has deemed to be good, saying that their love is in some way a sin or it goes against what God created. And the consequences here can be extreme if a person begins to explore their sexuality outside of the heterosexual binary. They can be cut off from family, from friends, from social community. And we know this can have a severe impact on their mental health. It's really difficult when you're not just having to deconstruct unhealthy family dynamics, which is hard enough already, but to also deconstruct the messages that came from your religion and are represented as being from God, that's a really complex layer to have to deconstruct through. And it's some serious rejection and can keep people shut off from their authentic self and developing who they are and keep them trying to conform and comply to make others feel at ease. I mean, there are still places in our world that have laws and even death penalties for people in the LGBTQ community. Now, some of that comes from their culture, but some of that is coming from American Christianity. Okay, number 11 is any church or organization that prevents us from getting the help we need. Now, often the teaching is that God will give you all the support and help you need. And any help you need beyond that is because of your lack of faith or your lack of being righteous. This can include getting the medical help you need, believing instead that prayer and faith should be enough to bring the healing that's needed. That is a form of abuse. It's called medical neglect. And often mental health issues and needs aren't even considered outside of the paradigm that they're you know, the person is sinful and needs to repent. There can be a real struggle to have mental health issues recognized, let alone to be understood and for help to be sought on behalf of the individual when this teaching is prevalent. I've had clients that were told their depression or their anxiety was just the devil trying to pry his way into their life, which, you know, completely bypasses what we now know and understand about dopamine and serotonin levels or the fact that trauma has a real impact on the functioning of the nervous system. What I believe to be the most damaging beliefs taught on this is the myth, I think it's a myth that keeps being perpetuated that God never gives you more than you can handle. 
You know, I think this teaching is particularly damaging. I remember years ago when my husband and I were still attending church and we were sitting in a Sunday school lesson and the teacher was teaching this very thing. God does not give us more than we can handle. And on that particular day, I just couldn't help it. And I thought it through. It wasn't like just this automatic, I just went for it, right? I probably sat there for a good five minutes. Is it worth it to speak up? Is it worth it to say something? And that day I just was like, yeah, I'm raising my hand. And so I said, what I think about this teaching. Well, I didn't say exactly what I thought. I think I softened it a little bit. But what I said was that I think this is one of the biggest myths in Christianity and that there are treatment centers all over this world filled with people who got more than they could handle. And then I listed a few of things that I believe are too big for people to be able to handle. Some of the big T traumas, childhood sexual abuse, childhood physical abuse, childhood verbal abuse, childhood neglect. I think actually anything that happens in childhood that shouldn't happen is more than a child can handle. I had just finished reading a book based on a true story of a child soldier. So I mentioned that, like this child soldier who was brought into a war at an age he couldn't even comprehend war. And then I said, I don't even think this teaching doctrinally makes any sense. Because basically what is being taught is that if I, as a human, I can handle anything given to me, I alone am able to handle everything that happens to me, all the bad things, then why would I need God? Isn't God there in our brokenness? Anyway, as you can imagine, that comment wasn't well received. And the rest of the meeting didn't really go so well. As what I remember, male after male, quoting scripture, reading scripture that basically said that I was wrong, which I didn't really feel like any of the scriptures they were reading said that I was wrong, nor did I disagree with the scriptures they were teaching or that they were reading. I just didn't think that they meant what they were reading them to mean. So at the end, the teacher basically concluded with thanking me for my comment and the thought-provoking discussion that happened, but that ultimately he doesn't agree with me and he thinks I'm wrong, which, you know, whatever. Because I still to this day don't think that I'm wrong on that. And I just feel that there isn't a more dismissive message or a more dismissive way to minimize people's pain than teaching them that if this is traumatic, something's wrong with you. If this is painful to you, then you're not doing it right. So just a little, you know, ending to the story, I'll finish telling you after the meeting, one of the male leaders in my church approached me. He'd been sitting right behind me during the meeting. In fact, he was the male that held the most authority at that time. And he said, he came up to me and said, I just want you to know that I used to think like the men in the meeting and what they were saying. But my thinking on this has changed. And I wanted to come let you know that you're right. And at that time, you know, I was deconstructing probably more intentionally or at a, you know, a bigger impact than I had been previously in my life. And I just wasn't at the place to be humble or smile and accept what he was telling me at that time. And I just said to him, you know, you are the one man in that room who could have silenced every other male. But no, you stayed silent 
for 30 minutes while I was repeatedly told over and over how ridiculous what I was saying was. And then after the meeting ends, that's when you decided to come tell me that you agree with me. You decided that the best time for you to speak up is once the meeting ended and the only person to hear you validate what I said was my husband. Now, as I said earlier in this episode, things got to the point for me where I had to make a choice between me being me or me being accepted by those in my faith community. And this experience was one of those things that looking back now, I can see was another step towards things coming to a head and me having to make a choice. But honestly, at that time, I thought I was doing a good job walking the line between who I am and what my personal beliefs are and what my professional beliefs are from, you know, what I've learned in my education and training as a therapist and the line that I needed to walk to still be accepted at church. Now I can see now that I was far from that line. And part of my great distance from that line was I really didn't have any say in deciding where that line was. Religious trauma can take place when belonging is conditional on belief, when a community requires you to share beliefs, or you lose your family and friends. It becomes really hard for religion to be healthy when conformity is a requirement. Now, as I've said, one of the amazing things about being involved in church is the community, or as many call it, their church family. That connection and support can be life-changing and can literally be a lifesaver. But if that connection is dependent on agreeing with everything that they preach or teach, and the consequences for questioning are as high stake as being cut off, I do think we have to start questioning the health of the system, just as we have to question the health of our family system if it's meeting certain criteria and it's having a negative impact on us or it's compromising our mental health. Healthy systems allow for members to have questions, to do their own research, and to come to their own conclusions about what does and doesn't work for them. Now, I also think it's important to recognize that not one person is able to control whether or not the system changes. And also, we can't really expect that the system changes just for us, or that what works best for me is what should work for everyone. After all, that's part of the problem of the unhealthy system, assuming that what works for you or the leader should and can work for everyone. And while I can say that it shouldn't cost you your community, your connection with family and friends, the reality is it might, it can, and far too often it does. And that can be incredibly traumatic. Now, an individual who decides that they will leave their religion or faith community may find themselves without a place to go. They may lose family, friends, or an extended network of individuals that they previously felt connected to. On a deeper level, it can be common to lose your sense of self and your identity as you learn that most of the things that you knew to be true as it pertained to your religious beliefs and faith were untrue. You might feel lost and find yourself at a point where you have to build a new support network based on who you are outside of the religion that you left. This is going to require some reconstruction. Religious indoctrination is not going to result in help. And I know I've touched on this throughout this episode, but I want to say again, because I think it's important that we all understand that telling someone 
there's only one way to think and to feel. And if they don't agree or go along, we can threaten to withhold love or even use the belief system against them is abusive. For example, you know, maybe the religion can tell you that your issues or any of the questions that you have just show how much hold the devil has on your life or that something is lacking in you. You're just not doing enough in order to have the same beliefs and feelings that everybody else has. Deconstructing out of an unhealthy faith system doesn't always mean that you walk away from religion completely. For some, that's what works best. But for others, there is a loss that they will be looking to fill. My advice is to take your time when looking for a new faith community. Take your time getting to know the people at the church. Really listen to what's being preached. Watch for what's being practiced within the religious community. And then decide if it's a good fit for you. And if it isn't, or you find out it just isn't working, or what you were feeling, or that you're feeling pressured into beliefs or actions that don't align with who you are, it is absolutely okay to take the time you need to reevaluate and make decisions about next steps moving forward. Just know that it can be a messy process. And it's difficult and takes time to tease out what parts are things that we want and what parts would we prefer to leave behind. And it's going to work best if you can be compassionate with yourself as you figure it out. These experiences can wreak havoc on one's sense of self and create a false narrative that absolute adherence to certain practices and traditions are necessary to make it to the afterlife. Because religious trauma can be prevalent in childhood, becoming more distant from religion can sometimes mean that individuals feel that they are abandoning everything that they've been taught. Now, I do want to say here, the last kind of red flag or unhealthy impact kind of goes along with that. If you grew up in a family whose religious beliefs and practices line up with the things I've been describing here. One of the things that I've noticed in working with clients like this or working through my own deconstruction is that the betrayal is double-fold. You're being betrayed by one system inside of another system. So you might have your family system inside of the religious system. Now, when we have healthy enough parents and some of these things happen, we're bullied or we're made to feel less than or forced into some behavior we didn't want to do or made to feel like who we are just isn't okay. And maybe we tell our parents about this. You know, part of their job as a parent is to help us process and make sense of what happened. Now, part of what that might look like would be for them to tell us like what happened was not okay, that it was wrong, that it was not our fault and that it doesn't make us less than. They can let us know how much they love us and what they know of who we are and how much potential they see in that. They can start to reframe the message that we got because they intervened on our behalf and said, no, don't believe this, this damaging belief that can come from trauma. I'm intervening and having an effect on that belief going forward. But when the family system fails to intervene on our behalf and instead believes the same things that are hurting us, well, that's a pretty deep betrayal. And often it's too much to process. 
So instead, we believe what we are told. Now, I want to say, too, here at the end, that religious trauma syndrome is not an actual diagnosis and is not included in the most recent version of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, which is the DSM-5. However, this does not mean that it's non-existent or doesn't impact millions of individuals every year. Religion can easily be weaponized, and sayings can be twisted to fit the agenda of the messenger. Shame, guilt, and condemnation can be among many of the harmful messages communicated, which can lead to lasting and deep mental health wounds and damage to the psyche. Often, religious trauma syndrome occurs when one is surrounded by a strong community of like-minded individuals who see that their religious path is the only way and identify those not in the religion to be bad or misguided. There can be a deliberate and intentional effort to be disconnected and set apart from mainstream society and tradition. For some, this can include not observing holidays, not going to certain places like movie theaters, not watching media or being informed about current events or historical news. Dressing in a way that sets us apart from, not like, not still part of society, but more modest, but like really sets us apart from in a way that we're like, wow, that looks like a totally different time period in order to dress modestly. Sometimes this includes living in more rural areas in order to avoid the appearance or perception of evil or attending religious gatherings frequently at the expense of attending other gatherings. And that way of keeping us isolated and cut off can make our way out or our exit from that community even harder. Now, I also want to add that spiritual abuse doesn't have to be perpetrated by a religious leader. It can also be a facet of domestic violence. Now, domestic violence is much more than just physical violence or hands-on violence. You know, I mean, it can include hitting, kicking, slapping, pushing. Yes, but it also has many psychological and emotional elements that cause a great deal of harm and distress. An abusive partner who is using spiritual abuse could shame or make fun of or ridicule your religious beliefs and practices if they're different from theirs or the fact that you don't believe that way anymore. They can prevent you from practicing your beliefs in the way that you would like. And sometimes this means that you're forced out of the house before you're age appropriately ready to be forced out of the house. They can use your beliefs to manipulate or bully you or use their beliefs to manipulate or bully you. They can demand that your children be raised with or without this certain religion And they can use religious texts or beliefs to justify any other kinds of abuse like physical, sexual, financial. We know that while archetypal traumatic experiences exist, such as sexual assault, there's also no predictable causes of overwhelming or disruptive adverse effects on individuals. Meaning, you know, sometimes when we say, oh, that would leave a mark, that's a traumatizing event. Sometimes we think that that's predictable, but Actually, we know that depending on how the environment responds to that event has a big impact on whether that overwhelms our nervous system and disrupts us in a way that has adverse effects. 
For one person, trauma results from teachings about hellfire, damnation, original sin, or a belief in the rapture. For another person, it's the act of public shaming or being slain in the spirit. For someone else, it's the experience of repeated sexual, emotional, social, or physical stigmatization and isolation. Remember that trauma is not just what happens to us. It's what happens inside of us, how that's stored in the body. At the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and education and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I'm not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.